The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Thanks for joining Building Elite Sales Teams. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. I'd be set if I had two more people like Sue on my team. She's my top producer and a couple more folks like her would really take my sales organization to the next level. How often have we heard that in sales organizations? Pretty often, right? What if I told you that thinking is setting your sales organization up for failure? That's what this Founders Features episode of Building Elite Sales Teams is going to focus on today. And our fearless founder, Lucas Price, is joining us to walk us through how to build a healthy sales organization. Lucas, welcome to your show. Jim, it's good to be back. I'm looking forward to our conversation. This is going to be an interesting conversation, especially since both of us have been and continue to be in sales organizations. And I even remember at several points in my career wishing that I could just duplicate my top producer and have a couple more of those and really set myself up for success. I think we might irritate some people with, with the shift in thinking. Now, before we dive into the conversation, I'd like you to quickly recap for any of the new listeners that are joining us today, a little bit about your story and what you've done as a sales leader. Prior to starting Yardstick, I was the sales leader at ZipWhip from near zero. It was less than a million in ARR. It was about a quarter million near zero. Built the sales organization that took ZipWhip to over 100 million before it sold the Twilio two years ago for 850 million. And so it was a very accelerated period where I had to learn very quickly because things were changing very quickly. That was really a great informative experience. And I made a lot of mistakes. More importantly than that, like I learned a lot of things and have used that to to try to help other sales organizations succeed. Thanks for laying out that little bit of background. And you mentioned you made a lot of mistakes that actually drove a, a lot of learning on your part. Let's dive right into the conversation. You mentioned in that growth journey that you had at ZipWhip, you learned a lot through those experiences and the job was constantly changing. Tell us a little bit about some of the key sales organization strategies that you picked up, especially when it comes to how you build teams. One of the things is I think it's great to have top performers and it's great to look for more top performers. And you're always wanting to add skills that you don't have to your team. But I think one of the signs of health of a sales organization is how big your second tier of sellers are and how productive they are. And can you make it bigger? Is it getting bigger over time or is it shrinking? We talked about this on an early episode of building elite sales teams with Kyle Norton. He mentioned that this is one of the measures he uses for health of his sales organization. If your second tier of sellers is getting bigger and it encompasses the majority of your organization and they're performing better, then it means your managers are doing a good job and it means your development program is working. And if it's shrinking and the, the performance of that cohort over time is getting worse, 
that means your managers are probably counterproductive in terms of the things that they're adding and your development plan isn't working, things aren't getting better. And so that's a really good measure to see whether the things that you're doing outside of just hiring high performers are really having a positive impact on your sales organization. So it's an interesting position that you bring up. And the reason why it's catching my attention and might ruffle some feathers is that we as sellers, when we're thinking about our territory planning and things like that, we know the 80-20. We know that 80% of our revenue is going to come from 20% of our accounts. So we approach our territories that way. Let's identify and uncover who that 20% of our account population is. And we often, as sales managers, will apply that same principle where our allocation of time in terms of development and resources is skewed towards the top 20% of our producers. I don't see what the problem is in, in approaching it that way. So prove me wrong. Yeah, I call that like the throw the spaghetti against the wall philosophy. You hire a bunch of sellers and 20% of them become top performers. And I think that there's a couple of things that you've missed there is you haven't really thoroughly vetted the people that you're hiring. And then you're not helping the people that you hired develop and become better over time. There is a certain portion of the people who are just going to be extremely skilled, have just the right experience, learn really quickly, and you want to find as many of those people as you can. But it's not the case that everyone else has to be deadweight. With skillful hiring, some of the people that you identify are going to end up being very good, but not the absolute best. And good managers will do things to enable them to be better. And a good organizational philosophy and practices around development and enablement will enable them to be better. And if you're really trying to build an elite team, if you're trying to maximize what you can get out of your team, you need to do more than just hire a bunch of people and see who rises to the top and, and let them carry everyone else's dead weight. Your point about building an organization that has a lot of very good sellers and a handful of best sellers, I think that makes a lot of sense when we're thinking about organizational health. If we ignore that and focus on, let's just keep identifying top producers or at least trying to find top producers, what do we miss out from an organizational development perspective that sales leaders need to be aware of that they might not be considering? So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we're not trying to find the best in the hiring process. I think that's still a really important element of it. I just think that what's going to happen is that when you're, when you do have a great hiring process, that's great at identifying talent, there's, you're still going to get a distribution. The distribution is going to skew higher where you're going to have, you're still going to have top performers and the next tier of performers is going to be higher than if you didn't, and you're going to have fewer low performers. You're going to have, but there is uh, for back, lack of a better word, a certain randomness to the hiring process where you can hire someone and they can have all of the right skills, all the right talents, and then life circumstances change for them. And they end up having to leave for reasons that were not, couldn't have been anticipated during the hiring process and out of, outside of their control or life circumstances change and they just can't keep up the, the level of performance that they've had in the past. And so the unexpected, even with a great hiring process, unexpected things will happen. And at the same time, part of what you're looking for in the hiring process is potential, is learning agility. And so some of the people that you hire that are going to become your top performers, they're not going to start off as your top performers. They're going to start off as people that are in a development curve. I'm not saying don't look for the high performers. Absolutely look for the high performers. Look for people who have talents that you don't have in your sales organization yet. 
but also realize that you need to build a strong management team who are going to help those sellers succeed and become everything that they can be. And so it's not get rid of the hiring process, still work really hard on the hiring process, but also make sure you have the career progression and the frontline management and the sales enablement and the training and the processes in place that are going to let other people succeed, not just your very top performers. That's a good point. If I translate what you just said and put it on a bumper sticker, you're arguing that you want balance across the organization as a hedge against disaster. So if you only have a couple of people that are super high performers and you have no depth underneath, if one of them leaves or gets hit by a bus or whatever, you're going to have some problems because there's nobody underneath that's actually developing at, at a reasonable capability. So let's talk a little bit about how you actually build depth in, in the second tier of your organization. You have your top performers, either intentionally or by accident, you've uncovered them. Now you have the whole rest of the organization to go ahead and develop. And you mentioned a bunch of things that you could be doing. It could be an infrastructure component. It could be a leadership capability component. What are some key things that your managers within the organization need to be doing on a consistent basis to develop that second tier of producers within your organization? The things that we talked about in terms of having the sales organization infrastructure that enables a, a wide range of sellers to succeed, the same thing is true for sales managers. The sales managers need to be given the correct boundaries, the right infrastructure, so that they can thrive in their role and they're not left to their own devices to make up all every bit of it as they go. And a lot of it is like, hey, these are the meetings that you're expected to have each week as the sales manager. And these are the things that you should be doing in these meetings and the things that you should be learning from your sales reps and the types of coaching that you should be providing. And here's the, the types of deals that you should be assisting them on and, and being part of the calls and meetings. And this is how many meetings customer meetings you should be having per week. I think providing that type of process and structure for the sales managers enables the sales managers to have success in the same way that, you know, having some guidance for a, a new seller in terms of the, these are the activities and results that you should be seeing on your path to success. The interesting thing about your answer that I'd like you to expand on a little bit is if we're talking about line level managers, typically that group has risen from the ranks of individual contributors and a lot of sales organizations and organizations in general are going to identify the top performers and promote them into management. Then what happens is that you have a period of time where that new manager is trying to figure stuff out and six months down the road, they're really struggling and now you're in triage mode. So if we're talking about providing managers with the right infrastructure to put them in positions of success, what should sales organizations and leaders within sales organizations be doing to get their managers prepared to leave so that they're effective? There's uh, lots of answers to this question. I think one of the things to start with is think about the composition of that management team. And this relates to a mistake that I made. We were growing really fast and our board was telling us, grow faster, hire more salespeople. And I was telling them, we don't have the management infrastructure to hire much faster than we are right now. And there was like, well, figure that part out. And we promoted a bunch of sellers right away. And early on, we were getting all of our managers as people who were promoted internally. And we became a little bit too insular with not enough ideas from the outside, but the Account executives loved it because they knew that they had like a great path to promotion. And we 
swung the other way. And then we were like, we don't have enough ideas from the outside. We need more kind of professionalism and outside experience brought in here. And we went a, a, a long period of time where we were hiring all of almost all of our managers from the outside and very few people were being promoted. And I think the right thing to do to get the right pieces in place is to have a bunch of your managers come from inside promotions and some of your managers come from outside as well. And I think that people have certain ideas about this. Some people say it should be 40% promotions. Some people say it should be 60% promotions. I think anything in that range is fine. I just think you shouldn't do what we did where you swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. You should have a, a constant mix where of both internal promotions and outside. So that's one piece of it is like making sure that you build the right management team where you're building high performers as an organization, where people are moving up internally and getting more responsibility and more effectiveness, and you're getting outside ideas and you're hiring people from the outside who are also great at management and, and new ideas and you're not becoming too insular. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece I think is, as I mentioned before, give, give be prescriptive about what you expect from your managers, about the meetings that you expect them to have, when you expect them to have them, what you expect them to accomplish in those meetings. And one way to do it would be like, hey, every other week for the first, let's say nine weeks of the quarter, we do a pipeline meeting where we talk about what pipeline's being created. And then on the opposite Monday, we do a forecast meeting where we talk about the deals that are in cycle and what we can do to affect those deals. And you're gonna do your one-on-ones on Monday and here's what's gonna happen on the one-on-ones. And then on Tuesday, perhaps there's gonna be some sales enablement training. And then on Friday, maybe you're going to do your team meetings and you're going to have all of your Salesforce records updated or your CRM records updated by the end of business on Friday. Some of the guidance that you give to your sellers and your managers about how their week is supposed to go so that the managers know how to schedule their calendar to make sure they're having those meetings and they have those other days in the middle of the weeks and, and part of every day where they can attend customer meetings and they can provide coaching and development to the reps on their teams. It, it doesn't have to be that structure, but that's the type of structure that puts your managers in the position to succeed. There's a part that I'd like you to expand. You mentioned a, a potential way that you could structure your week where you have one meeting for pipeline, another one for forecast, another one for your one-on-ones. Why is it important to split those things out into different meetings? I was talking about the way I was talking about the pipeline meeting and the forecast meeting is a form of a team meeting. So where each sales rep is bringing their most important deals, their most important activities in terms of creating pipeline so that the members of the team have a forum to learn from each other and it's focused. What you're gonna talk about, you're not gonna talk about every deal, you're gonna talk about the deals that can really be impacted, that can imp make the, the biggest difference on this sales period. The one-on-one -on -one now doesn't need to be this meeting where it's just talking about, hey, these are the activities that you're doing. How come you're not doing enough activities? Because you have a team meeting that's going over the most important pieces of that. And so the one-on-one -on -one can be driven by the needs of the account executive. They can bring the things to you that you can help unblock. They might need some internal resources in order to close a big deal. They might need you to join them some, for some meetings. They can bring you their priorities. And to the extent that they don't have priorities to bring you, you can dig in on important topics and find out about 
these topics instead of just looking at Salesforce dashboards and talking about numbers. You can talk about the things that actually move the needle. I'm glad that you called out uh, the true purpose of a one-on-one is to unblock whatever is happening at the rep level. But there's another element that I'd like you to expand on. Um, If you uh, are building a sales organization that's high-functioning, you want your AEs to drive the one-on-one conversation. Here are the things that I want to have line of sight to bring those to me. And I used to typically do this where I would have the reps that reported it to me, send me a high level agenda, what they wanted to cover in the one-on-one. So we're laser focused on that. But there's another element that I'd like you to expand on. And this entire conversation that we're having is on the topic of building depth within your sales organization. Tell me some of the, the ways that you can embed development into those one-on-one conversations that's going to take that middle tier or even your top tier to the next level within your sales organization. In one of the recent episodes, we talked with Wesleyan Whitaker, and she talked about the difference between feedback and coaching. Coaching, as a reminder, coaching are the conversations where an individual goes to their manager and says, these are the things that I want help with. These are the things that I want to get better at. And feedback is where I would go to you, Jim, and say, hey, Jim, these are the things you need to get better at. And you may or may not agree with the things that I've identified that you need to get better at. And so as a manager, if you can help draw out the things that an individual needs to get better at, then then now you're having a coaching conversation and we're talking about, hey, what are some plans? What are some ways that you can get better at this skill that you've identified? And now the individual is bought in. So these are things that I want to improve instead of these are things that you want me to improve. And so that's, I think that's the first step is like making sure that the individual is bought in and going through a process that helps them feel bought in. It it feels like much more laborious as a manager. You have to be like much more patient in the conversation to get a sales rep to identify the things that are going to have a big impact on their results and their career than to just tell them what they need to do that's going to have an impact on their results in their career but it's going to make a much bigger difference if they identify those things. And then coming up with a plan with them, assisting, really it's assisting them in coming up with a plan. And one of the things that's like really helped me in these conversations and got me much better at them is at the end of them, not leaving it undefined what the next steps are or how I'm, what the communication plan is going to be. The end of the conversation for, is always, hey, Jim, once you've tried the things that you said that you're going to try today, once you've tested them out, once you've done them to try to get better at them, what are you going to do to let me know how it goes? It's always putting ownership of the communication back on them, making sure that there's a follow-up plan. And then I don't need to be tracking a million different things and be emailing, hey, Jim, what happened in this call today? We've established that you're going to come back with me. And that process of having a conversation with you, you identifying what's important, us working together on how you can improve that, you deciding what your next action steps are going to be in terms of improving that, And then you communicating back to me about how that goes and how that's impacting your results. Those are the kind of the steps that I've found most impactful for having these positive coaching conversations that really bring about changes in sales results. One of the things that I'm thinking about is every leader and every sales rep is crazy busy. And if you're creating this high velocity sort of feedback culture and action culture, what are some of the things that you did as a leader to make sure that those follow-up items and those development items didn't fall through the cracks? One of the things I do is something that I do with everyone who starts working with me for the first time. 
And it's, this is a day one conversation for me where if you were a new employee, one of the things I would, we would talk about in one of our very first meetings is, hey, Jim, one of the ways to build trust with me is to do the things that you say you're going to do. And one of the ways to lose trust with me is to not do the things that you're not, that you say you're going to do and not communicate with me about it. If you, things will happen where you say, hey, Lucas, I'm going to do this and it doesn't happen. But, and that's going to be okay. Like I'm generally going to be pretty understanding of that. Life gets in the way, but I won't be understanding if you don't tell me. If you tell me, hey, Lucas, I'm doing this on Friday. And then on Friday comes and something blows up and you're not able to do it. If you send me an email and say, hey, Lucas, I know I told you I was going to do this on Friday, but I'm not going to be able to do it until Tuesday now. No problem. You're not going to lose cred with me. If I'm emailing you on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday saying, hey, Jim, what about this thing that you told me on Friday that you were going to do on Friday? Where is it? I haven't seen it yet or I haven't seen the result. I haven't heard about what happened yet. That's the way you're going to lose credibility with me. That's just part of the, I, I, the underlying contract of working with me. And that's what I'm going to try to give back to everyone that I work with. And I fail with it sometimes, but not very often that I usually, if I can't keep a commitment, I'm, I try to be perfect around communicating on that. I'm not always perfect, but I try to be perfect. So setting that framework of, Hey, if you want to move up and get promoted and working with me. If you want to build trust with me, if you want me to give you more responsibility, this is the way to do it. So I think establishing that upfront as a day one conversation does a lot to then having those follow-up conversations, coming up with a plan and putting the responsibility for communicating the results of the plan back on them. Now they know what the benefits and what the costs are of communicating back with me about that plan or not communicating back with me about that plan. I, I really like how you said what you said. And if I'm summarizing what you talked about, it's a great example of how you create space for yourself as a leader. You're defining the rules of engagement and what good looks like up front. And it's a little bit more elegant way of, of approaching it than what I typically did, which was, hey, I'm not going to chase you around for stuff that you said that you're going to do. We've covered a lot of ground in terms of building performance depth across your organization. But what I'd like you to do is think about all the things that we've talked about, right, throughout this conversation and map out the key principles that sales leaders need to have in mind when they're thinking about building that second tier of producers within the organization. Yeah, there's probably like a list of principles that's the right answer to this question, but I'm not sure if I know what it is. So I'm going to give you one idea that I hang my hat on when, when I'm thinking of this, which is as a sales leader in a growing sales organization, you're trying to work yourself out of the job. An organization when it's relatively small, if you're the head of the sales organization, you may effectively be a sales manager. And then eventually it's going to grow to where you're a manager of managers. And then eventually it's going to grow to where you're an executive who's managing directors, who are managing managers, who are managing the frontline sellers. And so that's like a, a progression that you might go through in your career. You might go through it across multiple companies. You might go through it across one company. At each of those stages, in order to get to the next stage, you have to create a group of people who can do the job that you were doing. In order to be the director, you have to create a group of managers who can then manage the salespeople. And so if you think of yourself of, hey, I'm building a core team here 
who's replacing me in the job that I do right now, then that I think provides a, a really good guidepost in terms of continuing to build the organization and continuing to think of how to build excellence across the organization. If uh, folks want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. Solid conversation, Lucas. When I think about the chat that we had, there's a couple things that stand out in my mind. One of the things that I think is particularly important for anybody that's listening to this conversation is that you as a sales leader needs to set the tone and the expectations on day one. And that needs to be clear in terms of what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for you and everybody else that reports into you within your organization. So if you're looking at building depth amongst your producers and building capability in your managers, that clarity of communication has to start from you as the sales leader and you need to be able to model what good looks like so it flows down to the rest of the organization. That second part, defining what good looks like, that's critical as well. And you get to the point of defining what good looks like by spending the time up front in building those relationships with your managers and your line level employees so that they have the comfort level that they need to come to you with questions. If you're not creating the opportunity and the space for questions, you're going to have an organization that is top heavy. You're going to have an organization where a few people will naturally rise to the top and everybody else is left to figure it out. So if the goal for you as a sales leader is to build a, a healthy sales organization and have a pool of people that can replace you in the job that you're currently having, you need to take the time, model what good looks like and then move forward with discipline so you can pull that off. So thanks everybody for listening. Lucas, thanks for being on the firing line on this episode. For those of you who have tuned in, if you like the conversation, leave us a review. And if you want more information, go to yardstick.team and hit us up there and we'll be happy to have a conversation with you. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.